get a special treat today. Blue Valley Baptist Church participates with Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in North Kansas City in a program called the Timothy Track. And what happens is we work with the seminary in having assigned to us for the academic year uh, one of their students who uh, serves as a kind of intern, a pastoral ministry intern in our church. And this year we've been assigned Zach Wiggins and we've been blessed to get to know him uh, this first semester. Uh, he is going to bring God's word for you today. His wife, Samantha, is here along with him. So, Zach, why don't you come and uh, bring God's word and welcome Zach this morning to Blue Valley Baptist Church. away from home, uh, but we have been uh, just absolutely blessed by Blue Valley Baptist Church and its leadership and its church membership, and just we've become a part of a family, and, and we love this family very much, and, and we definitely feel the love from the other side, so uh, thank you so much, and let me just say I was kind of surprised when I saw the text message from Derek Lynch on my phone while I was at work at Starbucks saying, hey, opportunity to preach, and I, I looked at it and I said, okay. And I read the text wrong and I said, opportunity to preach at Ridgeview. And I was like, oh, okay, Ridgeview. And I thought, okay, that's going to be good. I'm not nervous. It's, 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 a, it's a smaller crowd, so I'm used to that. And then we're at lunch and Micah says, no, nah, dude, you're preaching Antioch. And I was like, oh, okay. My voice cracked a little bit, you know. Um, so, and I, I was like, I'm preaching in Antioch, right? Derek's like, yeah. I was like, okay. So this morning... Would you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 15? Chapter 15. This is a really familiar passage to many of us. Um, and you're thinking, well, why, if it's a familiar passage, why are you preaching it? I'm the intern. That's why I'm preaching it. Um, <laughs> what did you expect? Habakkuk. Um, so let's read together verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. It says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners. And eats with them. The very first detail we need to mention here is the audience that Jesus is teaching to. We have two people, groups from two differently entire worldviews represented in this room. You have one side of the room, which is the tax collectors, which were kind of just following Jesus around to hound him, make sure he was doing everything right, uh, and then calling him out when they thought he wasn't. Uh, and so they're over there, you know, whispering to themselves and saying, look what he's doing. And then you have on the other side of the room, Tax collectors and sinners. And now tax collectors, as, as many of us know, were considered traitors to the kingdom of Israel and traitors to their own families. And, and they were outcasts because they collected taxes for Rome. Uh, and nobody liked Rome in Israel, especially those who were Jewish. And then you've got the sinners who are just people who've done enough to be outcast from their family, done enough to be outcast from the religious system that the Pharisees have, frankly, uh, devised themselves. So you've got these guys on the side of the room saying they're not even worthy to be around a guy that's claiming to be a rabbi, claiming to be a teacher. And you've got these guys who are just there kind of following Jesus, see what he's got. So Jesus, as often as he does, hears the Pharisees grumbling and he replies with a set of parables. We're going to skip the first two and go straight to the very last one. It's kind of the climax of the story, uh, to the parable of the prodigal son. So if you would, take your Bibles, uh, and we're going to go to chapter, uh, verse 11, excuse me, and we're going to read 11, 12, and 13 together. Here's what it says. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. 
and he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So we see a very typical family unit that Jesus introduces, a, a, a father and his two sons, one older and a younger. People would have kind of assumed already, okay, well, we know kind of how that's going to play out. The older son is kind of more of a leader. The younger son's kind of following behind that. And then something comes up that's going to be a little shocking to the room. And it, frankly, it kind of would be shocking to us today, where the younger says, son looks at his father and says, father, give me my share of the estate. Something that we kind of don't understand is this is basically the equivalent of me walking up to my dad and saying, hey, I know you've got stuff written in your will, and I know you're not dead yet, but can I have that already? Uh, and that, that would have been, that'd be offensive to my dad, hopefully. I mean, he would laugh like you laugh and be like, yeah, good one. Yeah, I don't have anything to give you. But, <laughs> um, you know, this is essentially the younger son is saying, hey, dad, you really don't mean much to me. You're pretty much dead to me, and I want my share of the estate. This was a bigger deal because dad didn't just go to a, a safe in the back of the house and pull out some cash and hand it to his son. The estate was the land they were living on. So dad had to go and sell this part of the land to give the son the money. And this was livelihood. This was important. Land meant everything back in these days. It was very much caught up in who you are, how you are identified. Right? So the father does this surprisingly to the, probably to the audience. And, and the younger son, many days later, says he, he goes to a faraway land. And this faraway land is, is, you know, so far removed, clearly he wants to forget home. Clearly he wants to nothing to do with dad and the older brother and whatever else is going on. He goes so far away to not even really think about it. And he squanders his living. He just, he squanders it. He goes and, and takes all of this cash that his dad gave him and squanders it on pleasures, on reckless living. He doesn't invest, doesn't start a business of his own just to you know, get away from dad and become his own man and, and start a business or invest in, in stock somewhere. You know, he squanders it. He wastes every bit of that money. Let's continue on. Verse 14, and when he had spent everything... A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed by the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So now he finds himself in a spot that you really don't want to find yourself in a faraway land, being a foreigner who nobody knows, in need of a job during a famine. You can imagine because he knows no one, because no family is near. In fact, he's so far removed from that family that probably friends aren't even close by that he gets probably the worst job that any man in Jewish society could get, and that's feeding pigs. Now, even in today's standard, feeding pigs isn't the most glamorous thing in the world. Am I right? Has anybody been around pig farmers? I, I grew up around a couple in, in West Tennessee, and, and they're fun people. But they'll even admit to you, yeah, it's not the glamorous job, most glamorous job in the world. You know? So he's sitting there and, and he's doing his job, which has made him unclean. And, and in fact, when Jesus had mentioned, even mentioned the, the job that he had, there probably would have been a little bit of a collective gasp in the room. <gasps> Pigs, oh no. 
you know, he's sitting here feeding these pigs and the slop looks good. Has anybody ever been around pig slop? Raise your hand. You've been around pig slop. All right. It's leftovers that you don't want to eat anymore, right? All right. So I'm from um, rural Florida, Polk County, Florida, and I have a really crazy uncle who won't be named just in case he's watching. Um, And he has farmed everything in his life and he's even farmed pigs and I got the the luxury of, of being around that one year. And he was feeding the pigs, and he looks at me, and he says, don't worry, man, it's completely edible. Thank you, man. I really appreciate that. Don't trust your crazy uncle. This stuff is nasty, right? (laughs) Don't do it. Um, So even, you know, even in in our society, pig slop is disgusting. It's not something that we see and go, I want to eat that. You know, now, even further, you know, we've, we've crossed the, the dinner table discussion line with Jesus. He's mentioned pigs already. And now he's mentioning the fact that the pig slop looks good. Uh, and clearly this guy's at a point where there's broken. He's just completely broken in a foreign land with a famine surrounding him, nobody near him, and all he has to keep company are pigs and all he has to eat is pig slop, but they don't even let him eat that. Which leads him to another conclusion. Verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So imagine the room when the pig slop thing is mentioned and the Pharisees are going, yep, that's what he gets. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's what happens when you're doing what you're not supposed to do and that's taking off with the property and, and squandering it. And the other side of the room is going, okay, that's pretty, pretty nasty, but I probably can relate with how rock bottom he is. Probably can relate with how He's kind of coming to his senses and saying, maybe there's a way out of this. So he thinks of it, and he says, well, how many of my dad's servants, there's basically slaves, can eat every day a good meal and sleep on a bed with a soft pillow every night, and I'm here feeding pigs. So he devises a plan, and this wouldn't have been unordinary for a son who's been disgraced from a family to, to try and come back and say, you know what, Dad, if I work for you, if I, if I make an honest living with you, uh, maybe I can earn my way back to being a son of yours, my status back into this family. So that's what he does. He's, he's getting his presentation ready, you know, and he's, he makes the sides to go home. We pick up in, in verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So we see here that the son arises. He's got his plan ready. He's you know, making the PowerPoint presentation on the way home ready to present to dad and say, look, I know I messed up, but look, you could get free labor and right, as long as you just feed me, you know, all of these things he's thinking up in his head and, and on the way off, he, he sees, his father sees him, but it, you know, it's not what we would expect, which is dad sitting on the front porch going, uh-huh, it's about time, expected this day to happen, get to work. 
Instead, his father sees him, feels compassion on him, and runs and embraces him and kisses him. This would have been dishonorable for any father to do, for any, any, any head of household to start running and this kind of abandon and this kind of compassion is not characteristic of a father, is not characteristic of a head of the household. In fact, it would have been shameful because, and I mean, think about it. I thought about asking Micah to dress up in a robe, but uh, you're welcome, buddy. Think about it. You had to pull the hem of your robe up to run or you're going to trip. It would have looked silly. And not only that, any man running in this day and age is probably not making up for his time. He's probably irresponsible. He's in a rush. Basically, the only way a man would be able to run and be honorable was during times of danger and times of war. But this father does something completely countercultural and runs to his son and embraces him and kisses him. And of course, in the confusion here, the son's like, oh wait, my presentation, that's right. Uh, Dad, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he's, he's dead on trying to get that, man, I, as long as I can become a servant again, I'll be fine. I can just earn my way back. But dad has nothing of it. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The son is, is going through his presentation and it's almost like the father cuts him off mid-presentation mid and said, no, 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 stop. Grab a robe, grab a ring, grab some shoes and put them on it. This is insane because the son has already left with everything that he was owed. The son has already got everything that he was supposed to get. And now he comes home after squandering his living, squandering this, this prize that he got. And dad doesn't treat him with contempt. In fact, he gives him his best robe, his ring, and his shoes. Before the son can even try to earn his way back to sonship, the father has already loved and accepted him and embraced him as a son. The story doesn't stop there. Verse 25. Now the older son was in the field, and as he came, drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called out to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Now, kind of go back in time for a second in this story. Go back to when the younger son left. All right. Now imagine the older brother, who's basically got everything left. It all belongs to him. And he goes, you know what? I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to double down. I'm going to do my work. I'm going to get up when the sun gets up. I'm going to go down when the sun goes down. I'm going to eat, and I'm going to take care of this farm. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, we can get back what we lost. The older son, in fact, is, is a, an excellent worker. He does exactly what, uh, what we would say in society is good. He's a good worker. He stays with his family. He does everything like he should. And lo and behold, he's in the field, probably working hard, probably rose to some kind of leadership during this work. And he hears a party. He goes, well, 
Dad didn't tell me about the party. Wonder what that's about. And the servant, one of his buddies, says, hey, man, what's going on in the house? And the servant says, oh, your, your brother came home. And your dad was so happy that he killed the fatted calf. Another big thing that we don't realize is the fatted calf was saved for specifically special parties. Not for when the kid who stole all the money and ran off with it and spent it all on gambling and pleasure came home. It wasn't this thing. It was to be saved for the best of people. It was to be saved to the most honorable of people. But now the younger son gets it for what seems like no reason at all. Verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go back in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. You never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The older son, in our minds, justifiably, is angry. He gets home from a hard day's work to hear that his brother's back, and a party is thrown. And he's sitting back here at home, stayed home, been faithful to his father, been faithful to everything that his father has told him, been a good worker, been a good member of society. And this happens. He doesn't even go in. He doesn't even want to be associated with this family. Because of all the work he's done, because of everything that he's poured himself into, and this is how he's repaid. This is what he gets. So he doesn't go in. The father comes out and, and, and entreats with him. Why aren't you coming in, son? And this even shows us further how disassociated from his family he is. He doesn't even address his father properly. He just looks at him and says, look, I have worked for you all of these years. I have done everything you have told me, and I don't even get a goat. You won't even give me a, a thing just to party with my friends. And I've done everything for you that I possibly can. kind of shows where the older son's motivations truly lie. Doesn't love his father. He only loves what his father can give him. He was just polite enough to wait till he died. Listen to what the father says. Verse 31, and he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I'll be honest, this story doesn't exactly end like I want it to. You know, I want to know more. I want to know, does the younger son you know, live up to the party that dad throws? Does the older son change his ways? Does he say, you know what, dad, you're right, and, and I've been wrong? Or does the older son just simply walk away but that's not what Jesus does. 
Jesus leaves it open-ended on purpose. Remember who's in the room? Pharisees and tax collectors and sinners. Obviously, he's trying to prove a point. And I think we can all kind of grasp that the older son represents a people group in the room called the Pharisees. And the younger son very much represents a people group in the room called tax collectors and sinners. And these people that claim to be religious, claim to do all of the right things, and and maybe somewhat that's true when they see Jesus with tax collectors and sinners, they scoff at him. They're disassociating themselves with him. But we can't lose the fact that both of these people groups have a worldview that does not match up with the gospel. Both of these people groups want something out of Jesus, but they don't want Jesus. They want something out of the Father, of God, the God who they claim to know. Some of them worship with fervor. Some of them worship kind of if they can. And that's where we come in. Many of us find ourselves on one side of the room or the other. So how does Jesus' message here apply to us today? Obviously, there are two drastic different worldviews represented by the two brothers. The younger brother represents a worldview that is easily recognized and even rejected by the church today known as uh, secularism. Right? And, and, but my generation has kind of twisted that definition of secularism, and we've called it self-discovery. We've called it just finding yourself. I mean, it, it's everywhere. Everywhere it's marketed is experiences. I worked for Starbucks for about two years, and, and it slowly became just, here's a good cup of coffee, enjoy it, to a coffee experience. And they literally trained us to love and accept everyone who came in because it's an experience. I'm not saying that it's a, a bad move on Starbucks' part. I'm pretty sure if you go to a Starbucks, they're doing pretty fine. But that's the thing. We market toward that. We market toward a self-discovery kind of worldview. But amazingly, this self-discovery has led us nowhere. Suicide rates in the United States are higher than they've ever been, especially in my generation. Self-discovery, just as the younger son found out, just leads to loneliness. He went off. He went to a world that that he didn't even know to experience new things. He experienced pleasures. He experienced all of these things that he didn't have before, and, and he ended up feeding pigs, wanting to go home. So many of us, I mean... Even think about just your teenage years. And teenagers, I know you're thinking this. Man, if I can just get out of this town, I'm going to make it. I'll be fine. I can't tell you how many times I said that. My junior and senior, if I can just get out of Union City, Tennessee, I will be great. On this passage for self-discovery that I didn't even know I was on. What I was looking for. And it led to loneliness just as it always will. And and even in our relationships, we we look to people to help us become more of ourselves. We don't pour into other people, but we look into whether it's a friendship or a romantic relationship, it's all about discovering 
who you are and what you're compatible with, right? Everybody's taken the, the Disney princess quiz. What Disney princess, Micah, what are you? Okay. Don't know? Okay. So that's all right. You can tell me later, man. Uh, but we, we think that, you know, we're in this search for self-discover and what we're compatible with. We think that, that as soon as we find this out, our problems will go away. Like I'll love my job as soon as I discover what I'm passionate about. I'll love my family as soon as we're compatible. All of these things, we're searching for something that doesn't exist apart from God. Apart from God. There's only one answer to the brokenness that we have. And that's a relationship with the Father, a relationship that was made possible by the very man who taught this parable. The comfort in this is that God provided a way to be in relationship with him through his son, through the cross. And just like the younger son, until we have that relationship, we'll chase after every experience we come across. I mean, we'll, we'll pour endless amounts of cash to find out who we are. We'll spend endless amount of hours with people just to find out who we are. Therefore, that comes to our very first point of application. It says, true identity is only found in God. True identity is only found up in God. So the younger son struggled with, frankly, identity issues. Not knowing who he was, not caring who his family was, not caring who his father was. And at the very end of the story, finds his identity. In fact, the, the identity is almost given, it's not almost, it is given to him. At the end of the story, at least the younger son's story, whose robe is he wearing? Whose ring is he wearing? Whose fatted calf is he eating? Everything that has to do with the younger son is now found in the father. The older son, however, represents a worldview that is completely opposite. The older brother would be considered moral, responsible, things that are valued in even today's culture. And, and it's clear that he does these things to conform to what is, to ex is expected of him, to be the good son. Kind of a way to sum up this worldview would be kind of a moral conformity. Uh, this is the standard. I'm going to conform to it, and I will be right, and I will be okay, and my life will go exactly the way it needs to be. Which leads to the next point of application. True validation can only be found in God. The older brother does what is right to be validated. He's been staying home just to get that pat on the back, just to get that goat for his friends. And when he doesn't get it, his worldview is tossed upside down. When he doesn't get it, he gets extremely mad and disassociates from his father completely. In fact, at the end of this story, the older brother is just as lost as the younger brother is at the beginning of this story. 
The younger brother at the beginning of the story had no desire to have a relationship with, with his father. He only desired what his father could give him. And at the end of the story, the older brother is in exactly the same place. He wanted exactly what the father could give him, but not an actual relationship with the father. And the father makes that clear at at the very end. He says, son, you were always with me. I'm right here. It was fitting to celebrate because your your brother is home. He was lost and now we found him. The issue with this is I'm afraid in church culture today especially um, is that we've created a system or we've created rules or we've created a, a culture that says as long as I do these things, I'll get my mansion in heaven and I'll get my jewel and my crown and I'm good. Yeah, God's true. I believe that. I believe in the Bible. But at the end of the day, how you live is what your worldview is. And how we live, if, if, if we're just doing these things to be validated in some way, we're missing the point. We're missing the relationship. And that those things are only fulfilling inside of an identity that God himself gives us. I think this ends so abruptly because it's an invitation. I think Jesus is saying, I'm right here, Pharisees. I'm right here. But the Pharisees can't see past their own righteousness to notice it. They can't see past their own, frankly, trust in themselves to believe that they need someone. They need someone like Jesus. How often do we, especially as churchgoers in conservative Kansas, just walk through the motions and think we're good? How often do every day we go to work on time when the sun gets up? And all of these things that are frankly favorable, that we we consider qualities in a person. And they are. But how much do they become our God? How much do we take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing? Just like the older brother does here. There's only one answer to to true validation, and that's admitting, first off, that I'm not righteous on my own. Everything, I can do everything under the sun that is good. I can be considered successful. Uh, I can be spiritually woke. Whatever, I mean, there's so many things that we we can label ourselves and try to attain a label, but we're really not saved because we don't need Jesus. Why would we? I've done everything I'm supposed to. And and we preach salvation by grace alone and and faith. and, And absolutely it is right to preach that. But do we believe it? And do our actions dictate that we believe that? Because the older brother lived that way, but he really didn't believe it.
The Pharisees lived as though they were going to be rewarded for some reason. And they thought Jesus was that reward as a Messiah, and, and he turned out to be everything that he wasn't for them. We see at the end of the day, this room is still just as divided. But one side of the room comes to Jesus a whole lot easier than the other. One side of the room can admit their need, while the other stays and says, I don't need anything, I'm good. Church today, do you need Jesus? Do you need the cross? Do you need a heavenly father who provides an identity and validation in that identity? Moving forward, and and I told myself I wasn't going to mention a next year thing because I think it's cliche, but moving forward in the next year, how much do we believe that we need Jesus? How much do we believe that we have a father who loves us that is willing to give us his robe and his ring and his shoes and allows us to live among him. Let me pray.